0: Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Finding Your Freedom podcast. So excited for you guys to be here today and really excited for today's episode because it's the first episode about neuroscience with one of my favorite professors from my master's program. So it's going to be a great episode all about hormones and behavior and how The different hormones in our body affect behavior, which is really cool. Um, So, yeah, I'm excited for this episode to kind of start things off and then plan to make some more neuroscience based (laughs) episodes soon. So, yeah, definitely stay tuned for that. Um, As far as any life updates or, you know, podcast updates still very much getting settled into my life here. Um, Kind of have been getting settled all summer and definitely think it'll be the next couple months of getting settled. And yeah, still have really exciting things that I plan to launch soon. Um, I've been slightly delayed by, you know, life circumstances and everything, which has definitely been a a good exercise in trusting the timing of everything and, you know, like letting the delay occur and, you know, knowing that everything will come out in the time that it's meant to. So very excited for that to come out soon. I'm not going to set a timeline now, but really excited for something that I will be sharing with you guys very soon. So yeah, let's get into today's episode. So, our guest for today, like I've told you about, is Dr. Gary DeHonich, who was my professor at Tulane. So, Dr. Gary DeHonich is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Tulane University in New Orleans, Louisiana. Dr. DeHonich received his BS in psychology from Lay University His M.S. in Physiological Psychology from Villanova University and his Ph.D. in Integrated Biology from Michigan State University. Following an NRSA postdoctoral fellowship in the Laboratory of Neuroendocrinology at Rockefeller University, he joined the Tulane faculty in 1985. His research has focused on the roles of gonadal and adrenal hormones as moderators of cognitive, affective, and reproductive behaviors. Complementary interests included the impact of biological sex on the development and expression of behavior. He has published 70 research articles, scholarly reviews, and book chapters, and held grants from the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation. Dr. Johanich no longer maintains an active research laboratory and devotes his time to undergraduate and graduate teaching and training of doctoral students in complementary pedagogical techniques. Dr. Johanich is the co-founder and former co-director of Tulane's major and master's programs in neuroscience. He is a recipient of many of Tulane University's highest awards including the 1995 Randolph C. Reed Award for Excellence in Teaching, the 1996 Sheldon Hackney Award for Excellence in che- Teaching, the two- 2007 Suzanne and Stefan West Presidential Fellowship in Undergraduate Education, the 2014 President Award for Excellence in Graduate and Professional School Teaching. He was also named the Distinguished Newcomb Fellow by the Newcomb College Institute in 2012, and the Honors Professor of the Year in 2020. Very long bio. Along with Dr. Dehonich's research achievements, he's a lover of New Orleans life and culture, frequenting local clubs, and is also known for attending all seven days of Jazz Fest. So yeah, that was a mouthful of a bio. <laughs> but I am so excited to share this episode with you guys. And yeah, can't wait. So let's get into the episode. <laughs> All right. So what have you been finding your freedom from lately?
1: Well, uh, again, with the shutdown and pretty much all of the things that I really enjoy and care about uh, living here in New Orleans have been at least temporarily removed from the table. So I had to kind of try to generate other activities. And I think like a lot of people, mostly what I have enjoyed is just kind of getting out and going for walks. I socially distance, long distances usually from people. And uh, we have great parks here Audubon Park and the city park, which are fantastic. So I spend time there and I've been spending a lot of time um, over by the river, by the Mississippi. There's an area called the Fly where uh, people kind of hang out. Um, and then we've been going to the lake, Front Lake Pontchartrain. Once in a while, too, so uh, those are usually very uh, refreshing and kind of renewing experiences that I, I really um, have enjoyed. the uh, The weather is warm, and so it's not always great to go. But if you wait late enough in the day, you know it really is uh, pretty pleasant, especially if you get by a body of water, the Mississippi or Lake Pontchartrain. Usually you're you're feeling okay. Uh, that's really about it. I mean, um, I I was able to renew some subscriptions to some of my favorite magazines, like the Atlantic and the New Yorker. So uh, they're coming in at least. But I'm, now I'm trying to find time to read them because I'm so busy with with classes. But uh, I usually uh, enjoy that sort of short reading. That's not, not light reading, but at least it's brief reading. And um, you know, we, we uh, the woman I live with has is a very good cook, so that makes things pretty nice too. And she's always gets a lot. She it's her it's her hobby, so it works great for me because I uh, am able to uh, partake of all the creations that she comes up with. And so um, I've been eating well, and I've been enjoying that. Fortunately, I haven't put weight on because when I'm stressed, I usually lose weight, and so I actually have dropped about five pounds since the shutdown um so that's sort of countered any any p- potential weight gain but uh that's about it and just kind of thinking about the future but uh not too much because we don't really know what the future holds so i try to float through right now until something becomes clear
0: definitely and i it's really interesting from when i started the podcast to now like seeing the transition of people's answers and like how have you been finding your freedom or like what have you been finding your freedom from because I think like we don't have as much access to freedom and I think that's challenging but I think I think nature is like a great way to feel that way and eating good food too (laughs) but I'm just hearing what you said and reminiscing on the parks and everything in New Orleans they are really nice
1: I'm I'm also, you know, just uh, counting the days till the weather does get cooler. It's, uh, it's September now, and so we're still in a pretty warm phase. But I figure, you know, two more weeks, we might get a couple days where it starts to cool off, and then two more weeks after that, it'll get a little better. And by the time October comes around, we can avoid these hurricanes. Uh, we might have some pretty nice weather. So I'm just really uh, perseverating on this weather change, which should come in about a month uh, because it is, it is a bit warm now. And uh, I I really do feel sort of trapped in the house too much. Um, which is one of the reasons I come to my office to get, kind of get out of the house for a while.
0: Yeah. I think that's, it's kind of like the the opposite with where I am now. Um, Cause I, I guess I'm excited for the fall because I haven't really like had a, I don't know, a real fall in I don't know a year or so or a year mm-hmm. or two. So I'm excited for that. But I think there's like this. Um, I feel like I've had so many people ask me since I got to Boston, like, are you ready for winter? Like, are you ready for winter? Um, because a big part of the pandemic for me has been like getting outside. So mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Anxiously well, I, awaiting winter.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I I actually I still own a house, my the house I grew up with in, in Pennsylvania. So our plan is to drive up there after Thanksgiving. Uh and spend a couple of weeks uh, in Pennsylvania in December which may not sound that great but it actually I really am looking forward to that so
0: yeah I like cold weather and like snow during Christmas time I feel like Mm -hmm. it's nice so I think I'm looking forward to that I think what I've heard from other people is just kind of like the January to April and May that it's still really cold is the more challenging piece but we'll Mm -hmm. see We'll see yeah.
1: how it goes. Well, and that's that's when New Orleans is really nice because New Orleans gets nice in March and April. And that's when it's kind of they're kind of the worst months up north, especially March. It's still sort of brown and it's windy and it might be rainy. And uh, March is one of the nicest months here, so
0: Definitely. Well, I'm gonna try try to come back to New Orleans then depending depending on the pandemic, of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess just as far as your research and everything and how, how you kind of got on this path. I know we've talked about it before, but yeah. How did you get interested in neuroscience and kind of the specific topic area and how did, how did your life path unfold?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it, it just kind of rambled on on its own, I would say. And, you know, growing up my, uh, actual fantasy career was to be a writer um because i wrote a lot and i was always kind of naturally good at writing um but i also did like science and uh you know i was really interested in chemistry in high school at least and um and i was interested in you know in the brain and and areas like psychology too and so when i went to college i started as a journalism major but quickly learned that that was not for me because uh, it was more of an investigative type journalism, which I didn't really have a, a personality for hunting down people and harassing them. So I moved more to the sort of introverted field of sciences. And, um, I majored in, uh, psychology with a, uh, sort of side degree in biology. Back in those days, we didn't really have a neuroscience programs. And I, you know, I really liked that. And I did some research as an undergrad and then, um, uh, Took a year off after I graduated, I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do, and I um, ended up applying to a master's program at Villanova. I'd gotten my undergrad degree at Lehigh, and uh, I went to this two-year master's program, and it was very physiologically based. It was in psychology, but it was um, something we called physiological psychology, which is kind of the precursor to neuroscience. And uh, I worked for a woman who was well-funded by the National Institutes of Health. She was pretty well known in her field and she really kind of put me on the right path. Um, And from there uh, I got to know different lab heads, principal investigators from different universities through meetings and stuff in the two years I was there. And I then applied to a number of schools where I wanted to work with specific people. And one of the people I was interested in was, um, a scientist at Michigan State, and I went out there for an interview. I loved it. I liked it more than any other place I interviewed, so I ended up there. And those were probably some of the best years of my life. Uh, My PhD, theoretically, is in zoology. Um, But in fact, uh, I'm not really much of a zoologist (laughs) uh, because it was a very open program. You could take really any courses that you wanted. And then uh, from there, I went and did postdoctoral training. After I got my PhD in Michigan State, I did postdoctoral training at um, the Rockefeller University in New York City uh, with uh, Bruce McEwen, who was uh, uh, pretty well-known in the area of hormones in general and hormones and behavior. Uh, He actually passed away in January of this year. Um, But after three years at Rockefeller, I took this position at Tulane. And again, the thing is just, I never had a clear plan in front of me. I never thought about even being a college professor, let alone teaching at a university. Uh, I liked research. I was motivated to do research. And I came here to do research. But then when I got here, I realized that uh, I really liked teaching also. And so it became a really great combination for me. And they kind of reinforced each other in in, in really both directions uh, in terms of, the teaching led to better research, the research led to better teaching and, uh, it just kind of worked itself out. So, um, you know, there's always something to be said for planning, but I think I was making small decisions along the way that for whatever reason seemed to be the right decisions for me. And I felt that really I had gotten into this kind of the perfect career uh, after all that. And, uh, really have been happy here at Tulane and in New Orleans and uh, the career worked out great. Um, I feel in the end, I, you know, I had a research career, which was uh, a good one, but I feel like I've had a bigger impact in the area of teaching over the years. And that's what I've been doing for the last five years since I closed my research lab is to being devoted to uh, to teaching and also working with our doctoral students uh, to help them uh, become uh, good teachers when they're in the academics when
0: they move on. Definitely. And I, I think there's a lot to be said for, I think a lot of like our culture or our society or just people in general make these like big plans. And I, I think when you like slow down a little bit and just take the next right step, you actually can end up on like a more aligned path versus, you know, making this five or 10 year plan So I think that's really cool just to hear that you kind of, what it sounds like was just kind of taking the next right step and it ended up being this thing that actually fit really well for you. Yeah, I think, you know,
1: part of that is you're learning along the way. So you don't want to make decisions before you should. And I mean, that's an example with the journalism because I I wasn't really suited for for that kind of uh, writing and I had to learn that. And that was my plan all along. I was going to, you know, I was going to be in something where I was writing. And that was not the right avenue for me. And I had to learn that. And then I ended up getting into science where I do a lot of writing. And I've done a lot of writing over the years. So there were plenty of opportunities to do that in the end. But it was the better venue than uh, trying to pursue a career in any kind of journalism.
0: Yeah, this is interesting, too, because hearing kind of the this, this story again and everything too it's interesting because um I'm just noticing like similarities and certain things I've been interested in as in high school I actually was on a newspaper and I did journalism and my plan going into um going into college was to do medical journalism and mm-hmm. then I decided not to do that And I've always still been interested in writing and everything too, but it's been kind of nice because I feel like in a way like this podcast is a little bit of that, but I'm interviewing people about, about things that they usually love, not hunting down people to get to, I don't know, some like crazy story, like maybe Mm -hmm. you're doing in journalism. Mm -hmm. So it is cool to kind of just see how the pieces of people's paths kind of just like come together.
1: Yeah, and, I, well, it's, and it's also, you know, sounds cliche, but knowing yourself, and I think, you know, I was highly introvert, introverted. I, I don't have siblings, and I grew up in a town of 50 people, so I didn't have much exposure uh, to human beings for uh, a long time, and um, so I had to kind of learn uh, what I was all about and what I was capable of, and, you know, eventually, you overcome your introversion, but a lot of that has to do with, developing confidence in something in yourself but also in you know something you can do and so uh i mean i think now in certain scenarios some people would be surprised to hear that i'm introverted and in other scenarios they agree totally that oh yeah he's very introverted so it's funny how it comes out in some situations and not in others
0: yeah i mean this is just a side note completely but i i always just like wonder i always wonder if introversion versus extroversion is really a thing um <laughs> just like in the psych world i i just wonder if yeah i just wonder if it's a thing or if some people aren't okay with being alone with their thoughts but yeah. that's kind of a side note i guess
1: well not not to go too far into that but the, the, the actually the the terms introversion and extroversion are are, are really uh, kind of been dismissed by i think social psychologists these days so they're they don't like that terminology or that dichotomy, um, you know, and then you get into shy versus introverted there. Those are separated out. There's a really great book. Uh, if you're interested in this called quiet and uh, I read it about five years ago. So I actually forget the author. She's quite well-known, but that's a really interesting book that kind of probes into all of this. And uh, you know, introverts can function really well in the world of extroverts but they also need their downtime. And um, she has stories in there about people, you know, getting, uh, pairing up, being married or being partners. And one person is really extroverted and tries to pull the introvert into that. And it ends up u- using, ending up in calamity because uh, the introvert needs his or her own time. So uh, in any event, uh, yeah, it's an interesting. There's something to it, but mostly I think introverts kind of are able to manage their, their introversion. Uh,
0: yeah. I think like my, um, my like interest in that question and the distinction is that, um, yeah, I've never felt, I, I, I've never felt strongly either one. So I feel like a lot of people feel like they're either, either or. So I think it's just like in myself, I'm like, I don't think either of those, apply for myself so i think it is interesting and i i just wonder like like i said before like does the extrovert really just need to recharge alone or like do they just not want any alone time because i feel like all humans want alone time i don't know
1: mm-hmm.
0: or maybe- well some
1: of them don't i i, I don't know <laughs> I mean, we're classifying we're being too all or none i think i mean i know some serious extroverts and they they say they need they need their quiet time so um I think that's important. But, you know, one thing I liked was one way to tell an introvert from an extrovert is if you ask an extrovert how they are, they're going to say, great, everything's great. And that's kind of the end of it. That's the response you'll get from an extrovert when you ask them how they are. Introverts will begin to tell you all kinds of things, some really bad and some disturbing, and and they'll go into a narrative uh, to express themselves which is in a way you think that's sort of backwards right because they're introverted and they're hiding themselves but they're in fact not when they're asked uh, often at least to someone they know that uh, how are you doing and it, you, you might you might get a soliloquy uh, out.
0: So yeah, I guess now we'll kind of get into talking about the three different areas that we wanted to address as far as hormones and behavior. So the first area that I kind of wanted to touch on was sex behavior, which I know we've talked about before how this particular area is a little bit um, a little bit fuzzy as far as the implications for humans. But just to start off, would I if you could just like give a brief description of what the sex hormones are for male and females and then kind of how they play play into behavior if at all.
1: Well, again, we usually think of uh, the male hormone being uh, androgen and females, uh, of course, estrogen uh, or estrogens because there are many types of estrogens. Um, but uh, it turns out that both males and females in uh, every species has both of those hormones represented. It's just matter matter of the level of the hormone and the way the system responds to that hormone. So uh, that is that males have estrogens and females have testosterone and other androgens. And uh, those hormones, which we think of being as male and female, do cross over into both sexes. Um, this, the most powerful effects of hormones in animals can be seen not only on the structure of the animal's peripheral structure, you know what they look like, uh, their uh, sex characteristics, which are often formed early during development, uh, and also their secondary sex characteristics, uh, things like uh, the plumage in certain male and female birds, those sorts of things are hormone-regulated. But in many of these species, also, the effects of of the hormones are uh, powerfully exerted on the brain, and that gives rise to certain types of behavior that are characteristic of being a male or a female. Uh, In humans, that's not the case necessarily. So while hormones have a strong effect on the peripheral structures in humans, again, especially during development, so as we are developing prenatally, uh, prior to birth, and then postnatally, uh, hormones can affect our bodily structures, uh, the development of the genitalia, um, and uh, in secondary sex... Characteristics like uh, muscle composition and uh, hair growth, et cetera. And that persists up and continues again and sort of reasserts itself during puberty. But there's a lot of confusion and controversy about what these hormones do to the brain of humans. And uh, it's been a raging controversy for many years from back uh Forty years ago, when I first got into this area, people were arguing about this, and we still haven't made a heck of a lot of progress in understanding how hormones, or uh, even if they have a very strong effect on the brain of humans. Um, so uh, that kind of persists, particularly into adulthood. So you know, as an example, if we're talking about sexual orientation, uh, if there's a male uh, who's homosexual and sexual preference uh, orientation. Uh, we would f- find that giving that male uh, more male hormone isn't going to cause him to change his sexual orientation to say heterosexual uh, and the same with females so these hormones are not regulating things like sexual orientation. Uh, the hormones can have an impact on sexual identity by affecting the peripheral structures so uh, and often we when we see uh, transgender individuals if they're taking hormone therapies that we can have some change in bodily structure but um, the, the role the brain plays in things like gender identity and gender role uh, and sexual orientation is really very murky and there are not a lot of strong statements we can make about what's going on because we just don't really understand at this point. Uh, I think part of the explanation is that those are very complex types of of human uh, attributes, and um, there are many other factors that determine your gender identity, your gender role, your sexual orientation. doesn't mean it's not biologically affected, and certainly it is. Uh, It's not a choice, but uh, how hormones play into that and actually can affect those types of attributes, uh, I think is something we haven't really nailed down yet. And again, it continues to be very controversial area. So uh, overall, in terms of brain and behavior, I would say there's direct effects of androgens and estrogens are um, really hard to nail down at this point. Uh, But on the other hand, there certainly are indirect effects the hormones affecting structures, say outside the brain, that do begin uh, to interact with what our gender identity, gender role, and sexual orientation are.
0: Definitely. And just to clarify for everyone, there are, you know, estradiol receptors in the brain. We just don't know how that is affecting behavior.
1: Right. And I think all the hormones we might talk about today, just to mention that is you know the hormones are secreted by glands and uh, those hormones usually go into the blood circulation or they are released in the brain itself but for any kind of hormone to have an effect it needs to interact with a receptor and so uh, each type of hormone has its own kind of receptor and the receptors are just they're proteins that are associated with cells that react to the presence of different hormones so the hormones going to interact or bind to the receptor, and that's going to change the um, activity of that particular cell, whether it's a cell that's outside the body, in the uterus, for example, or uh, in uh, the structures of the, of the, of the uh, male, the seminiferous tubules, react to those hormones um, through receptors. And the same thing in the brain. There are receptors for all of these hormones in the brain. And so the way a hormone could affect... The brain would be through receptors on neurons but uh, while well, we know that happens clearly in animals non-humans uh the effects in the in the uh the consequences of that in humans is, is is less clear than we than we see in non-human species
0: definitely and thank you for the clarification just kind of describing what hormones are and what receptors are and everything as well it's probably probably helpful for everyone to know that as well. Um, And as far as sex behavior, like we said, it's kind of of murky and hard to tell what's going on. There are receptors in the brain, but we don't really know how that's affecting behavior. Um, And I, I know it's kind of a similar story for affiliation behavior or bonding behavior. So if we wanted to talk more about that, I think it's a little bit more clear than sex behavior. But just to talk about oxytocin, I think I think oxytocin is kind of thrown a lot, around a lot in, I don't know, in random news articles making claims about it being involved in bonding, not with really any scientific evidence. So I think it'd be good to kind of clear up what oxytocin is and what we know that its role is.
1: Well, again, oxytocin plays... Um Different roles in the when I say again peripheral structures, I mean outside the brain, and it has also has effects in within the brain, and it's oxytocin is a it's a small, what's called peptide hormone, it's made of small a short string of amino acids, and um, we know we've known for many years that in humans as well as other um, mammalian species that oxytocin is uh, made by the brain but it's released out into the circulation of the body, into the peripheral structures, and two major roles oxytocin plays. One is that um, during uh, labor, uh, the oxytocin causes the uterus to contract. It's one of the hormones that causes uterine contraction during the birthing process, and it assists then in causing what's called parturition or birth uh, through the uh, birth canal. Uh, So it has a very uh, powerful effect on causing the muscles, the smooth muscles of the uterus to contract to push out uh, the newborn. Um, The other second most important thing oxytocin does is related also to uh, offspring, and that is it's released, uh, and uh, again, from the brain, and it uh, goes into the general circulation down to the breast, and it causes their contraction of muscle tissue that allows milk to be ejected from the mother's nipple. And uh, so oxytocin, very powerful in those two effects, and in both cases causing just contraction of muscle to kind of squeeze out, in one case the newborn, but also squeeze out uh, milk uh, from, the, uh, from the breast during uh, nursing. So those, are, those, those types of effects have been known for many years. Uh, now in terms of its effect in the brain, most of that interest began in the 1990s when people began studying a certain kind of, uh, rodent called the vole. And again, this is really an interesting story and it's a very elegant line of research. Uh, and it's kind of a long story, but I'm going to try to make it short. But what people discovered is that Uh, there was a type of vole called a prairie vole, which is found mainly in the Midwest. And these prairie voles, uh, both the males and females tended to bond with each other, which meaning that they essentially would meet up and they would uh, engage in sexual activity. And then they would stay with each other for long periods of time. And um, Carol Sue Carter, who worked at the university of Illinois was one of the first people to work with these voles. And, uh, it was noted that uh, they seem to be monogamous. Now, most rodents, as in the case of most mammals, are not monogamous species. So to see these voles actually sticking together for long periods of time after they first made it was interesting. And then uh, as things developed, uh, Insel and Young at Emory began looking a little more at the uh, biology underlying this behavior. And they... Uh, concluded, and again, Sue Carter was also onto this, that oxytocin might be the hormone that's regulating this monogamous type behavior in the prairie vole. And so they actually began studying voles in laboratories. uh, And uh, they found in fact that you could basically allow a male and a female vole to mate, put them together for 24 hours, they often would mate. uh, if you came back later, separated them, brought them back later and at a later time, could be a day later or longer, and uh, gave uh, the male or the female a choice of spending time with the animal or the mate they had actually spent time with before, or a stranger, a new male or female, what they discovered is that the, uh, the male or female would tend to spend more time with the familiar animal, the animal that mating had occurred with and uh this lasted for various amounts of time in bowls so both males and females were showing this both the male and female paraboles were showing a preference for the animal that they had spent time with previously and actually mated with uh not all animals do that and all prairie bowls do it but a good portion do and uh through our observation it's been Suggested that this may actually persist for very long periods and there was evidence some evidence that even the entire life of the vole, That animal would prefer that Original mate and in some cases it was reported that even when the mate may have died the, uh, the Surviving animal whether it was a male or female did not actually um, mate or prefer a, a new partner so this persisted for long periods. Now, I, I underscored this was not in all the animals. And one of the things I want to try to emphasize is that there's there's variability in, in these responses. But it was interesting because, again, monogamy is kind of a rare thing to see, especially in rodents. Uh, to kind of speed it along a little bit, um, there was uh, there are other types of bulls that are... Uh, similar to prairie voles. Unless you're a real top flight zoologist, you're not going to be able to tell these voles from a prairie vole. They look an awful lot alike. But in fact, they're different species. And um, two examples are the montane vole and the meadow vole. And these animals are actually largely polygamous. They actually uh, mate with many other partners, the males and the females. So uh, insulin Young compared the prairie voles, the monogamous voles, to the species of polygamous voles, montane or voles, And what they did is actually look at the brain structures of these animals. Excuse me. And uh, they discovered that the receptors for oxytocin were very different in their distribution in the brain of a prairie vole, a monogamous vole, versus the brain of a polygamous vole, like a montane vole. And largely, they were at that time studying females. So this was um, uh, kind of a characteristic of females. So it turned out there were a lot of receptors in certain areas of prairie voles, um, female prairie voles, that reacted to oxytocin in certain brain areas. The areas were, for example, what's called a nucleus accumbens in the prelimbic cortex. And those receptors were not represented nearly as densely in the brains of montane or meadowholes. And so it was a correlational kind of relationship, but clearly there was a difference uh, in the way these animals were able to actually um, express their preference for partners. And uh, so one would, one would argue that maybe this underlying uh, ability to respond to the oxytocin was um, the biological underpinning of this monogamous behavior that we saw in the prairie vole and didn't see in the Montana meadow vole. And to take the story a little bit further, at least in some of the earlier work and it's pretty much been more common that male metavole sorry male perivoles um, actually respond more to a different kind of hormone vasopressin vasopressin looks just like oxytocin and only has one small difference in its structure compared to oxytocin but metavoles monogamy sorry perivole's monogamy um, seems to be more related to vasopressin and oxytocin. So they also studied vasopressin in prairie voles versus montane or meadow voles and uh, found kind of the same relationship, the different distribution of vasopressin receptors in the prairie, male prairie brain compared to the montane or meadow vole brain of the male Um, What's interesting is, and I'll bring us to a a conclusion here, is they actually were able, and this was done in in Dr. Young's laboratory by a co-investigator named Miranda Lim, and uh, in 2004 they published a paper in Nature where they were actually able to insert a gene into the cells of the male menovol, and this gene caused the male menopole to, remember it's a polygamous fall, to overexpress vasopressin receptors. So they gave the, the male menopole a way of making more vasopressin receptors. And then they tested those animals that had been given this gene treatment, this gene therapy, so to speak, uh, for their monogamous versus polygamous behavior, and sure enough, a number of the male metaboles were showing monogamous behavior under that circumstance. So this suggested that if you could get uh, more of these vasopressin receptors available in the brain, in the proper area of the brain of the male metabole, you're more likely to see monogamous type behavior in that male metabole. Again, I underscore that not every male metavoe responded to this treatment, and also some of the male metavoles were already monogamous. so when we talk about monogamy and polygamy, I think you have to keep in mind that even within a species that we might consider to be polygamous or monogamous, you're going to naturally see some of the other behaviors some of some some of the uh, metavoles are naturally monogamous when most of them are polygamous, and some of the prairie voles are are naturally polygamous, even though most of them are monogamous. But when you, um, again, make this uh, gene transfer, you can make, basically drive more of the male, malevolves into a monogamous status. So that was kind of really interesting. It used gene manipulation, and it um, was a very kind of exciting study uh, at the time. So that, that's where this all comes from. When we talk about oxytocin in the sister or brother hormone vasopressin, what happens in humans? Well, again, unfortunately, it, it isn't that clear. Um, people have worked on this for a while to see if oxytocin or vasopressin might play a role in male and female relationships. And there is some support that that may in fact occur Uh, There's a lot of data that are hard to interpret in the literature. Um, But as just some examples. Uh, There have been some studies done where uh, couples were brought into labs, male, female couples brought into laboratories. And um, they were uh, basically... um, Assess for different conflicts that might exist in their relationship and then during the sort of experimental phase of this they were uh, Sort of triggered given triggers to those conflicts and asked to discuss whatever that might be So if they were financial issues issues about their children issues about time span etc Trying to kind of push buttons uh, for certain types of potential conflicts that someone might be experiencing in a relationship And they discovered in some studies that if you gave uh, oxytocin before those conflict conversations, it did improve communication. (laughs) So one might argue then that um, oxytocin does have an ability to improve uh, partner-to-partner communication uh, and kind of seeing the other side of someone's position, or at least, Approaching that individual in a way that you're more open to their ideas and where they're coming from in the relationship. Uh, Some of that has also been extended a little bit, and I don't really kind of want to go into it right now. But in terms of looking at things like autism and um, people have looked at autism um, as possibly being treated with oxytocin. Um, And that's, again, an area where people continue to, to do work. Uh, They are also looking at oxytocin in terms of other disorders, including depression, schizophrenia, uh, social phobias, et cetera. But um, we don't really know at this point, you know, very definitively how powerful the oxytocin effect is in determining whether someone is in a monogamous or polygamous relationship. Um, There are other studies I could mention, but, um, I think it's a it's a it's a difficult thing to study, in optically ongoing relationships, and um, I emphasize again that there are many other factors in humans that regulate things like the complexity of a relationship between two human beings.
0: Completely. Well, I think that was like kind of a good summary of the animal research, and then kind of how it interplays in humans and something that I just kind of thought of from like rehearing that is with a lot of these things and like looking at receptors in humans and having a definitive answer for how it's affecting humans would involve kind of knocking out other receptors and seeing what the response was kind of just from oxytocin and in humans that's not really possible so in humans we kind of are limited to you know experimental paradigms where we're giving oxytocin in different different circumstances like that so I guess I would say it's like promising and it seems like it's having some effect but it's a very murky and unclear picture and just kind of reiterate the point that humans aren't prairie voles or montane voles so Obviously, there's a lot of different factors that play into human relationships, but I was also thinking about, I remember one study that we talked about, I haven't even mentioned this yet, but in, in our class in behavioral endocrinology, I think it was the study when there was maybe higher oxytocin levels in the beginning of a relationship predicted staying with a partner long term.
1: Right. So yeah, there was a study done like that. And uh, they looked at people sort of at at the beginning of a relationship versus people that were not in a relationship. And uh, they discovered that if your oxytocin levels were elevated early in a relationship, that that actually did predict that you'd stay together longer uh, in that relationship. Now, again, by longer, unfortunately, experimental studies don't go on for huge amounts of time. So I think longer at that point was six months or a year. They didn't really uh, follow the uh, subjects after that. Uh, But it did look like, you know, that maybe uh, oxytocin, which really fits well with the the bull model, if if it's surging uh, during the early parts of a relationship with someone, then that may have a more long-term impact on the success of that relationship. And so I think that's, again, a really interesting kind of um, finding, but one that people are still uh, looking at. I will say also, and I don't know if you want to go any further with that, but um, one thing to consider, and, and I'm sure this will interest you, and you probably have thought about it, but um, you know, the question becomes with gene therapy, which is something we're gonna be using to treat various disorders in the future, um would you want to apply gene therapy to someone uh to i guess ensure their monogamy in a relationship because it could easily be possible to do that Uh, we are using gene therapy now to treat different types of um, health crises and health health problems and uh, it's still at an infancy but there's going to be much more of that And so eventually it could certainly be applied to these situations, but of course this gets into an incredible ethical question as to whether that should be uh, done. Uh, And I think also we talked a little bit in class, but I I did kind of bring up the ideas, you know, would you want to screen people? Would you want to screen, for example, a potential mate if it gave you some indication of their uh, potential for monogamy uh, in the future staying with the relationship? Uh, so there's a lot of ways this could go in the future, and they, all these different directions raise huge ethical issues. Um, what's also important to keep reminding everyone is that the oxytocin is probably not the only factor that's going to guarantee monogamy. And so uh, even if you could screen someone, uh, you're only looking at a part of the picture um, in terms of each individual. But still, you know, we may we may get to that point, and um, it will maybe something that requires discussion and, and careful consideration of how far you want to go with screening people, say, for different biological markers.
0: Yeah, like the more we know about how our biology and our hormones, and how how all of that is affecting our behavior, like the more opportunity for intervention that could be that could be good or bad. And I think with that, I was thinking too about, I guess it depends if they can pass the blood brain barrier, but just different drugs that are supposed to only be working on peripheral receptors, but then can have some effects in the brain and how that affects behavior. And yeah, that we're just not super clear on the ways that different drugs can affect behavior.
1: Right. Well, and again, that's a a really interesting uh, issue because, um, and we didn't talk about that, but um, the just to clarify a little bit, the the oxytocin that, for example, affects um, the areas outside the brain. It is made in the brain, but it's released from the brain into the um, uh, general circulation and gets the peripheral structures like like the breasts and the uterus. But once it's out in that peripheral area, it cannot enter back into the brain because of certain aspects of its chemistry. And so there's a mention the blood-brain barrier blocks the movement of certain substances into the brain to protect the brain. So even though the oxytocin uh, gets out, it can't get back in. The oxytocin, however, is in the brain naturally because some of it is being released in the brain itself. So you're still getting oxytocin effects from sort of your natural oxytocin. But if you wanted to administer oxytocin, which would we call it exogenous oxytocin, you can do that because you can get around this blood-brain barrier by intranasal administration. Because if you basically use a nasal spray, uh, there is a way for certain substances to penetrate into the brain, and this has been used uh, for again some of the. Experiments that have been going on that we've talked about, like, for example, um, you know, giving some oxytocin um, during a couple conflict or maybe giving oxytocin to try to help um, someone with autism improve their communication skills. So that has been kind of figured out in terms of at least entering oxytocin into the brain. And the same with vasopressin would also be able to be administered by that, uh, intranasal route.
0: This is just a question kind of thinking back to the sex hormone question. Um, once like can estrogen or estrogens and progesterones, progestions get back into the brain or are they in this, but no, they're, they're lipids, they're lipid hormones.
1: Yeah, well, there, well there's so a couple things clear. there. I mean, one thing, first, remember, most of the <clears throat> production of estrogen and androgen and progesterone is coming not coming from the brain, but it's coming from the peripheral areas. So uh, estrogens are made by the ovaries in large part, and those estrogens can actually pass right into the brain easily because, again, chemically, their structure allows them to do that. Uh, androgens coming from the testes uh, can also penetrate into the brain without any problem. So uh, the, those hormones can actually kind of go wherever they uh, will please. Um, interestingly though, just in an aside, the brain actually makes those kinds of hormones also. And uh, so uh, in the case of some of those, these hormones we call steroid hormones like the androgens and estrogens, they're made largely by the peripheral structures but they can even be made in the brain itself. But they can move wherever they want to, pretty much, yeah. unlike the oxytocin or vasopressin.
0: Yeah, I know. I know we asked about this, and or I asked about this after class one day. And I think you had said that there wasn't really an answer for this, but it's just making me think about um, just birth control and if exogenous like progestins and estrogens are like getting into the brain, and then what effect that right. could have.
1: Well, that's a that's a good example, though, because, you know, if you looked at someone's libido or and when people look at sexual activity, they look at a number of different measures. You know, they might ask people, <clears throat> have them keep a journal, did, did you have interest in having sex today? They might ask about, did you initiate sexual activity with a partner? Did you engage in auto-stimulation? So there's a number of measures that uh, sex researchers often use to assess libido or sexual drive or desire. And um, the reason that I like that example is because obviously if you're on birth control, um, you might engage in sexual activity much more readily because you feel protected. So it just shows you the kind of um, confound that exists there. Maybe it's not so much that you're getting these hormones into your brain and they're affecting your your sexual uh, drive, but that you're now free to engage in sexual activity because you're protected from, uh, with contraceptives.
0: Yeah. That just made me think you're taking the, the birth control and it's decreasing your stress, which is affecting things, which is a perfect segue <laughs> into talking about stress. Um, I think both of our favorite topics, maybe it's your favorite. It's my favorite topic. So I'm excited to talk about stress and how those hormones affect your body. Um, So yeah, just as far as what happens in the body when we're stressed hormonally, kind of just going through quickly what the fight or flight response is, as well as the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis in stress.
1: So basically the stress response um, evolved, if you believe in evolution, which most of us do. Um, to deal with life-threatening types of situations that you might encounter in the course of a day. And so all the things that are allowing you to deal with those stressors as the system kind of developed over eons is uh, to evade or avoid a physical stressor or a physical threat. And so if you think of the things you might need under those situations and think, it's, think about things when you're afraid actually, you know, your heart starts to be faster. We've all experienced that. Uh, it starts to be with a greater force and you, so you may actually feel it almost pumping through your chest. Uh, you'll start to breathe faster. You'll take in more oxygen and you'll actually have more glucose available in your blood circulation which is a source of energy And you'll start pumping more blood because you've got more blood pumping and it's more oxygenated because you're breathing better uh, to your muscles and areas that are going to help you run away or confront the threat, so flight or fight. Uh, In the meantime, you're also going to be uh, restricting the amount of blood flow to other areas that you don't need during that situation. So, for example, digestion becomes limited when you're under stress. Uh, reproductive processes are not as functional. Uh, so any, many of the internal visceral responses are going to be uh, retarded or controlled during stress whereas the uh, physical functions that allow you to get away or fight the stress are going to be uh, magnified. So that's the basis for the stress response and you know we sometimes we call that an acute stress response. And, That saved many a life in all of the years that humans and other species have lived. The problem comes is when you don't uh, have the ability to turn off that stress response. And um, so um, when the stressor has been removed or you've learned to deal with it in some way, your stress response should return to its baseline. And so so you should start breathing normally again uh, your heart should slow down, you don't beat as hard, and you start to re-engage things like digestion and reproduction process- processes. Uh, so that's all good. But in uh, some individuals, that ability to mute or return or restore the systems to a baseline, an appropriate baseline, uh, is is not working as well. And if you think about this, it's like a thermostat. It's basically feedback. So when it gets too hot in the room, the thermostat detects that and the temperature is uh, turned down and uh, you return back to the baseline temperature. It's it's at a very superficial level, the same thing is going on in your body. After the thread has been removed, you are able to detect that and you return to normal baselines. Now, if you think about modern society, in modern culture, we're not usually faced by a lot of these physical threats um, as regularly as maybe in the past. And uh, we're under kind of a slow grind. And so people end up turning on these stress responses when they think about uh, the bills they have to pay, or maybe an illness they have or their children or some conflict in a relationship. And so you're, uh, stress systems can be running uh, maybe not at the highest level, but at some elevated level above a normal baseline. And over time, unfortunately, that stress response ends up wearing down your system. Because in the case of trying to escape a physical threat, you're just putting everything, you're mobilizing everything that's going to help you get away from that threat or to fight it. And when you, when you move uh, uh, from a situation where your stressor is gone those feelings go away as we said but um, someone who's under a lot of stress for long periods uh, these hormones that allow you to escape physical threat are continuing to have their effects and some of the hormones we're talking about are for example the stress hormone which, which is called cortisol in humans and cortisol for example, is what's called a glucocorticoid, which means it increases blood glucose. Um, One of the consequences of that over time can be you can develop diabetes if that glucose level is elevated for long periods. Uh, Most interestingly, probably, is that cortisol also can actually uh, damage the brain. Cortisol is made by the adrenal gland and it comes from the adrenal cortex, the outer part of the adrenal gland, and it is a steroid, so it can pass back into the brain. <clears throat> it, there it can actually, over time, uh, actually damage neurons in various ways. What it normally does when it goes back into the brain is it can actually uh, kind of give you a little cognitive boost to deal with the stressor, but it also functions as part of this thermostat, thermostat structure uh, or system by turning down further release of cortisol. So the cortisol feeds back on its own release because although it's released by the adrenal gland, that adrenal release is controlled from the brain. So there's a series of hormones the brain releases into the general circulation. Uh, One of those goes down to the adrenal gland and shuts up cortisol release or reduces it. So if that access gets disrupted in some way, uh, usually because you're under stress a lot, you're damaging some of the neurons that control that process, and uh, you end up not being able to turn down your cortisol levels. So there are, are elevated levels of cortisol around a lot, and it's, it's kind of uh, damaging or wearing out the system. And what may even happen is that your sort of baseline changes. So what's a normal baseline for someone may suddenly become elevated the baseline may become elevated in uh, someone who's under chronic stress and isn't regulating their stress levels properly. So in those situations, then uh, the, uh, the the chronic stressor or the chronic presence of cortisol uh, creates a baseline that your system is kind of more comfortable with now, but it's a baseline that over time can actually cause damage, more damage to the system. So it's almost like a the vicious cycle that begins
0: yeah something just like hearing this over again for you know maybe the 100th time um that came up for me was kind of the difference between chronic stress versus like what your body or brain is doing during trauma because i feel like they have similar mechanisms in dysregulating this system like do you know anything on like what the difference is or is it similar damage in both cases?
1: Uh, the, the, it, it's similar. There are different aspects of stress, sort of chronic stress that keeps your baseline levels or hormones high versus a very traumatic event. Uh, it, it does get a little bit involved, but I mean, essentially, um, we don't know all that happens, but One of the things, and again, it's a little difficult to explain uh, here, but um, when when a very intense trauma occurs, you may have a tremendous uh, release of a hormone called norepinephrine. And norepinephrine is part of the uh, sympathetic nervous system, which also is involved in this fight or flight response, but it also is involved in creating memories And um, oddly enough, that's why I don't wanna confuse you on this, uh, in some people it appears as though when you have a traumatic experience, the norepinephrine levels in the brain go way up. And the cortisol levels, which I said usually occur during stress, actually may go down. And so this probably isn't everybody who has something like post-traumatic stress disorder. But in in this model, the low levels of cortisol at that point when the norepinephrine levels are elevated allows the norepinephrine to kind of take over the system. And uh, as a result, you you form these very uh, unusual memories of the traumatic event. Now, what I mean by that is the memory of the traumatic event could be very intense. Um, Sometimes we talk about flashbulb memories. And with a flashbulb memory, uh, you remember a lot of the details. Most of us, I was listening to a podcast last night, in fact, the, about the Kennedy assassination. That's In my lifetime, that's the thing I remember the most intensely. I can remember exactly where I was when we heard the president have been killed. And, and the details, and the, just so many details of that moment. And flashbulb memories are healthy. They're okay. But the more intense the trauma and the more intense your reaction to it, you might get into a situation where you get uh, very intense memories, but they're fragmented. So sometimes people that experience trauma <clears throat> have memories of the event, but it's, the memories are all uh, sort of mixed up, and they're not really clear, and they may even be not real to a point. And in some cases, the trauma is so intense and the reaction is so intense that the person may not even remember the trauma. They may have an amnesic period in there where they can't remember even what happened. So the idea with this model is is that it's because you're getting too much of this norepinephrine released in the brain, which is also involved in forming memories, particularly of stress events and traumatic events. Um, And it could be linked to the fact that the cortisol levels don't go up to mute that um, when you experience the trauma. So I know that's a little complicated, but um, it's one of the ways people have tried to explain. So the, the point is, is that you when you experience a trauma, you're, it's, it's kind of more of an acute event, uh, or often is. And it, it does have impact later in the symptomology of post-traumatic stress disorder because you start having these intrusions you have, you remember something about the memory, um, and it disturbs you and it puts you back in this sort of traumatic state. And so people that have PTSD uh, have these abnormal memories that are formed that then trigger stress responses later. And that's when you have you know, sort of a, an episode of a post-traumatic uh, intrusion or uh, retrieval of the memory. And also over time, you know, we could talk forever about this, but over time, each time you remember uh, the, uh, the particular traumatic events, uh, you might find that the memory becomes stronger. So we have a thing called consolidation of memory. And every time you, when you're studying, you know, you study something and you learn it and then you study it again to learn it better. And each time you study it, you consolidate it more and more and it gets stronger and stronger. Well, the same thing can happen with traumatic memories. They they can be reconsolidated each time and they become stronger. And if they're fragmented memories, you know, that they could be really difficult memories to deal with because they're. Uh, they're not in any kind of logical sequence. Um, so, you know, in terms of trauma, it is a stress response. In some people, it has this sort of paradoxical effect of beginning with low cortisol that doesn't regulate your norepinephrine release.
0: Yeah, this definitely just has me thinking about a lot of different things. Um, I'm just going to mention, like, one article kind of related related to that. but. Yeah, I'd I'd read an article recently because it's interesting. I didn't realize like the overwhelming amount of ep- was it epinephrine or norepinephrine.
1: Well, in the brain, usually it's it's, it's norepinephrine. But you're getting into another thing so It's actually epinephrine <clears throat> from the adrenal gland can communicate with the brain to cause more norepinephrine to be released. So epinephrine actually is part of that that whole circuit I was just talking about.
0: The whole cycle. Well, that's interesting because I read an article about. Um, They're looking at inflammation markers after people came in from a car accident to the emergency room, categorizing that as a trauma and looking at their inflammation markers and in their blood and then seeing like who developed PTSD after. And I I think that they were expecting with people, people that had high infl- inflammatory markers to get PTSD later, but it was actually the people that had low inflammatory markers that predicted PTSD later. So I just wonder how that is kind of related to norepinephrine and how that dampens cortisol in the brain as well. Like if that would be related, I don't know.
1: Well, there's a lot of interactions that occur uh, between cortisol and uh, the immune system. And, you know, basically inflammation is a reaction uh, that, is triggered by the immune system. So um, again, without going into all the links of that, there certainly is evidence that uh, cortisol can affect uh, not only immune function, but affect inflammation. So that the cortisol could be playing a role in that, as the norepinephrine could also. So, you know, because both of those types of norepinephrine and cortisol are released, uh... During a stress stressful period or during a trauma, uh, we do see a response of the immune system and again, it gets a little complicated because <laughs> initially we see often see an, an, an increase in immunity in immune cells uh, during a stressor. But during acute stress, you know that would kind of make sense, and maybe you'll have some inflammation after but in uh, in long term stress, Uh, the cortisol uh, actually can uh, suppress immunity. And that kind of makes sense because, I mean, one of the treatments for autoimmune function, autoimmune function is when you start to make antibodies against your own cells. One of the uh, therapeutic treatments is to give cortisol, prednisone. And so I guess without going into all those details, which again are, are, again, a little hairy, um, There are certainly communication lines between uh, the autonomic nervous system, which would involve norepinephrine, between the uh, adrenal system, which would involve cortisol and immunity. And then inflammation comes along with that too.
0: Definitely. And kind of just to to end up on stress, I know we talked about some of the long-term consequences being Diabetes, but I know that there's a lot of other long-term consequences of chronic stress if we want to just go through those and then quickly try to quickly touch on how epigenetics plays into okay. stress.
1: Well, pretty much every it's an easy answer because every system of the body is affected by chronic stress and uh, I mentioned damage to brain cells. I mentioned diabetes. Uh, also heart, obviously, and blood vessels are affected. And uh, what it seems to come back, there's a type of model called allostasis and something called allostatic load. And it relates back to what I already said. Essentially, your body, uh, when you're under chronic stress, kind of re-regulates itself. And so you know, rather than being at a certain baseline, your baseline uh, changes when you're under chronic stress. And so now rather than going back to a normal baseline, which would be normal for say a human within a certain range of different parameters, you only go down to a baseline. It, uh it is somehow above that. So maybe um, I guess blood vessels would be an example. They can actually become altered uh, under chronic stress where your blood vessels are very elastic and they're flexible and um, they need to constrict and dilate to regulate blood flow. But when you're under um, chronic stress, uh, that elasticity uh, begins to um, become less available. And so you're getting kind of a stiffness in the arteries and that's gonna elevate your blood pressure. You're not gonna be able to react very well to uh, regulate the size of your blood vessels to cause constriction and dilation. And so now, rather than uh, going to a certain level of elasticity in the blood in the blood in the arteries, you're going to a, a less of elastic situation to put it in those terms. Uh, and that leads to high blood pressure. And high blood pressure is going to cause all the organs that receive blood vessels, which is all of your organs, to be under additional pressure, and so then we see sort of a an indirect effect of this elevated blood pressure on your organ systems, like your kidneys and your liver, and uh, you name it. Um, so uh, the whole idea of a chronic stress, you know, a it affects all of the systems. It affects them in a variety of ways, uh, but one of the common things that seem to be happening is that we have this change in the baseline. Uh, that the body's uh, functioning at. And that elevated baseline is uh, con- not conducive to-, to proper functioning, and it's gonna lead to all types of different disorders. What's interesting is if you take you know, uh, a list of things that, uh, that hormones do, like cortisol and norepinephrine, when you're under an acute stressor, you list those things, we mentioned some. And then you look at what happens under chronic stress, it's almost the exact opposite. So, you know, just as an example, I gave glucose levels go up. And so that's good, gives you additional energy. But over the long term, that's going to cause things often like um, weight gain and uh, uh, diabetes. Um, And uh, so often the chronic effects are antithetical or the opposite of the, um, the acute effects of the stress hormones.
0: Definitely. Um, yeah. And I just wanted to point out kind of from what you said to about the damage with brain cells, that that would be related to psychiatric conditions such as depression could be involved in chronic stress, just to clarify um. Right.
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, basically just, you know, briefly, two of the areas that are affected, one in particular is the hippocampus, which is a region that's involved in memory, but it also is involved in other other functions like anxiety and depression. And those cells have a lot of receptors for cortisol. Uh, over time, the cortisol actually affects those cells negatively. It may not actually destroy the brain cells. There is some question about that but it affects their connections to other brain cells. And so you can see uh, changes that occur uh, in terms of the way these different neurons in the brain connect to each other when you have a lot of cortisol affecting uh, the cells over a long period. The other thing that cortisol does and what stretch does is it reduces the ability of the hippocampus to make new brain cells. Hippocampus is one of the only brain areas that makes new brain cells throughout your whole life. And um, cortisol in many different models, including humans, uh, does reduce that cell birth, what's called neurogenesis uh, that occurs in the hippocampus. So you're not only not making new brain cells, but you're losing connections between the existing brain cells. And that, that could be part of the pathology or the, uh, the, the neuropathology of the underlying depression.
0: Definitely. And I know we don't have a lot of time left, but if we could just briefly touch on epigenetics, um, and how that plays into stress.
1: Okay. Well, it does connect nicely with what we've already been saying. And, um, <clears throat> just briefly, uh, you know, see, how can I make this quick? Uh, you know, we all have, uh, chromosomes with genes on them and uh, the genes that you have are the genes that you were born with and they're the genes you're going to die with uh, just because you have a gene however doesn't mean it's going to be expressed and so uh, genes make uh, what's structures that are important chemical structures they make proteins and proteins are many of the different things we've talked about So just as one example, we've already mentioned, all types of receptors are proteins. And so um, when uh, cortisol is released, as in our example, it goes into the brain and it acts on cortisol receptors. And I said, one of the things that cortisol is doing by acting on those receptors is it's muting or turning off the release of more cortisol. So it's this thermostat function but you have to have cells in the brain with cortisol receptors that react to the cortisol so then they can reduce the the production of new cortisol because we don't want to keep producing cortisol after the stressor is gone. And um, it turns out that uh, whether you're making, whether you're making new receptors I'm sorry. Let's let's talk about whether you're whether you're ex- making new receptors, really, but expressing the gene that makes those receptors uh, is going to determine how many receptors you have. So if you don't have enough cortisol receptors in the these areas that control cortisol release, you're not going to be able to turn it off very well. And so that's where epigenetics comes in, because epigenetics can determine uh, how effective, how active these genes are that make receptors in this case, how active are the genes that make cortisol receptors? And if you have either a reduced number of those receptors or reduced activity of those receptors, so that they don't interact with the cortisol as well, you're not gonna be able to turn off your system as well. So what determines that? Well, it turns out a lot of things determine whether genes get expressed. And um, again, it gets into some chemical, Issues, So I won't go too far with that. But essentially, even when you're growing up, uh, you can um, activate systems that will repress the expression of genes that make certain receptors. So if you're stressed early on in life, there are processes that could cause repression of the genes that make cortisol receptors then and later in life. And so that's kind of an epigenetic phenomenon. And so, so what it does is it links the environment you're in to your genetics. We always talked about nature and nurture. Well, this is a uh, model that provides the link between nature and nurture, environment versus genetics, at, at the cellular level, really the molecular level. And so if, we, uh, if, we're, if we're stressed by bad parenting, uh, or a bad diet, or uh, abuse, early on uh, during life, we might find that uh, the genes that are able to give rise to cortisol receptors are repressed, some of them. So then later in life, you might not have the normal complement of cortisol receptors, and you're less able to turn off cortisol release. So this, this again, it's linking the environment to your genetics, but it's also linking your later, in this case, health, the mental and physical health to the presence of those receptors. And so the less cortisol receptors I have in the brain and the less able I am to turn off cortisol release, uh, the more damage cortisol is gonna do uh, as it's being released throughout my lifetime.
0: Yeah, so basically it's the stress, it's epigenetic changes that Um, decrease the number of receptors less response less effective response to stress and then it's like a a vicious cycle basically not responding to stress stress affecting you more chronic stress and then all the bad effects that come from that so yeah it's not it's not good (laughs) Um,
1: again it it does link back to developmental stages when this can begin Uh, there's also a lot of interesting data showing that some of these changes can actually be passed on to later generations so this repression of these genes may actually extend to the next generation and into generations after that Uh, there are people that do work with holocaust survivors that have looked at the uh, children and grandchildren of those individuals and uh, are trying to make a case that this isn't just related to the individual experiencing the stress, but it could be related to their offspring and the offspring of uh, their children. So that's that's kind of interesting and scary. Uh, but the more we know about this, the more we might be able to uh, address it.
0: Yeah, and I think something to end on with this like just to talk about like is are these effects reversible are the epigenetic effects of reversible and does it depend on the developmental stage and what how can that be related i'm just thinking of if you heal the stress of like a previous generation can you by having a good diet make all these changes in your lifetime that change how many cortisol receptors you have or you know, a different receptor? Because for epigenetics, that obviously affects um, a ton of different receptors.
1: Right. Well, we know in animal studies that some of these things are uh, reversible. So that's a good sign. We're not so sure about it in humans. But right now we have what we've already had for many, many years. And it sounds like a cop-out, but, you know, reducing your stress levels uh, with behavioral types of uh, therapies and, and uh, psychotherapy, I mean, probably are good things, uh, possibly taking various drugs like antidepressants uh, will also reduce your stress levels. So those are good. Uh, so you know, right now, in terms of the looking at sort of medication versus non-medication, really what people are doing to deal with their stressors are kind of what we have. The idea is that maybe down the road, we could actually try to prevent some of these uh, repressive events from occurring during early um, stress um, but right now because this is such a ubiquitous phenomena it's, it's occurring through all, you know many parts of your body where this repression of genes is occurring we can't really give a drug although some people have tried it but we can't really give a drug that's going to start acting one way or another on uh, on this phenomenon of gene repression because um, for one thing, you're going to be affecting all kinds of cells, some you don't want to affect. And the other thing is um, we don't really quite know enough about it in terms of being able to turn uh, these mechanisms on and off because maybe some of them you want to turn on and some of them you want to turn off. So it's,
0: although we understand it at
1: a much deeper level than we ever did, uh, the actual manipulation of it involves targeting very common processes. So just giving a drug that's going to affect you know, one of those common processes could have all kinds of other effects. Uh, kind of like, you know, if you gave chemotherapy and you kill the tumor, but you might end up killing good cells. Or if you gave radiation, you're killing the tumor, but you're killing other good cells. So it's, it's generally analogous to that. So we're just not at that point. But this is all, you know, it's a process and we try to learn more about it. And eventually, uh, you know, people will come up with different ways of manipulating some of this. The more we know about it, the better it is. But right now, I think using sort of traditional therapies like uh, psychotherapy, and behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and uh, maybe medications in terms of antidepressants are, are the best solutions. And, you know, we're trying to be really careful with the children when we raise them, and that isn't always possible, but kids can be raised in supportive, healthy environments. That's going to make a big difference. And we're always trying to work in that area
0: too completely um yeah well i think that's all the questions i have thank you so much for um really comprehensively kind of going through all of these topics um yeah it was great to talk through all of this stuff and i'm super excited that we were able to get you on the podcast
1: okay well it's been fun